what happened in the US was a now famous Amer uh, professor of psychology, Jennifer Frey, a very eminent and I think an amazing person, but she privately accused her parents of abuse during her childhood. Jennifer Frey, by the way, was the person who originated the term DAVO. So it's an acronym, D-A-R-V-O, which uh, for how abusers tend to respond. And it stands for deny, accuse, and reverse victim and offender. So it's, I didn't do it. You're just saying this because whatever, your nutty therapist has persuaded you. And this is a terrible thing for me, an awful thing to say. And in, in you know, whatever, however long it took me to say that, 30 seconds, they've, they're the victim. And I think it's a really great observation, actually, that that of um, Jennifer Frakes, how, how quickly those things get turned around. And suddenly the person who's saying I was victimized is the one who's defending themselves and, mm. and, and having to justify that. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today you're going to hear from Ashley Conway. Ashley is a counselling psychologist who's worked with clients with severe trauma for over 25 years. He has a special interest in the memory of trauma, particularly of childhood abuse. He's co-editor of and contributor to the international award-winning book, Trauma and Memory, The Silence, The Science and the Silenced. He's currently chair of the charity CDS UK, which is Clinic for Dissociative Studies, which helps provide therapy for clients suffering severe dissociative problems, which can emerge as a result of prolonged childhood trauma. With regard to the problems arising as a result of historical trauma and also good and bad governance of charities, Ashley describes himself as an accidental expert. He's written many publications relating to the subject of false memory syndrome and how this is used to silence survivors and is currently working on a film script. And I should warn you perhaps that today you're going to hear some information that might stretch your imagination and sound quite fantastical, but you can see significant video footage online that substantiates what Ashley is going to talk about. And we'll put some links in the show notes to help people make broader sense of the context of this I think Ashley but really delighted to get the chance to speak with you again Ashley welcome. Nice to meet you too. Okay so Ashley can you tell us about your career pathway what attracted you to train as a counselling psychologist? Uh, well I, I, it feels like I've been interested in psychology forever I mean literally since I was about 12 I remember somebody talking about psychology and I thought oh, that sounds really interesting and then I mean now it seems quite strange but I it was probably because it was the only sort of psychology related person I'd heard of was Sigmund Freud so I started reading Freud in my early teens which was quite an interesting place to start and then um, yeah no, I maintained an interest in psychology and I was really lucky that I did my first degree uh, at Southampton University where at that time, Tony Gale, who became a president of the BPS, actually, was the prof. And we had a really great dynamic uh, department, which I really look back on with such affection and, and inspirational teachers, I think. Was, and I just, and then I had actually, so the next bit of sequence was I then wasn't sure what to do next took I thought I'd take a year out and do something which turned into three years 
for a variety of reasons. And then I thought, no, I really, I really want to go into psychology. And I started, I did get things kind of slightly back to front and I, I ended up, uh, I started doing some voluntary work at Charing Cross Hospital and that turned into a formal position there. That turned into being a research person there and that turned into a PhD. So I spent about seven years there and then did some clinical training after that. And it was then, because I'm old, it was at the beginning of the counselling psychology degree, which I, I, I was attractive to me. And you could do a kind of different, different pieces. It was um, an interesting mixture. Yeah, so then I went down that track. And I think I qualified in 1992 or 93. I've been there ever since. And I, love, and I, still, and I still love what I do, actually. I'm still um, fascinated by psychology. That's never changed. Um, I get irritated by the politics and various other things, but I like working with people. Excellent. So, well, you've been qualified for over 25 years and as a counselling psychologist, yeah. and uh, uh, people were only really beginning to talk about false memory syndrome about that time, I think. So That's so, right, yeah. So what does false memory syndrome refer to, and why did it capture your interest? Okay, what does it refer to? Maybe I could say something about that a bit, a, a bit later about the whole background of it. Um, but it's a claim, basically, that adults report um, episodes of abuse in childhood as a result of ideas put in their head by deluded therapists would be the short, uh, my short comment on it. Um, I, when it first came to England... There's a guy called Roger Scottford who set up the British branch. And I'll actually, I'll probably go back a bit to talk about the Americans and how that all that started. And I was interested in it. I was interested in the idea that you could create false memories of a whole raft of experiences in childhood. And I called, I telephoned Roger Scottford and had two long conversations with him. And after the second one, decided there wasn't any point in having a third one. Um, and then, so I kind of was, I was, I was kind of actively interested in a sort of positive way to understand it. And if there were risks from clinicians inducing false memories. And then something happened, which was when I said, um, and Naomi said at the beginning, I considered myself an accidental expert. I never intended to become an expert of sorts in false memory uh, syndrome in their societies. Um, and then quite early on, after the formation of the British False Memory Society, I had a client who had a continual memory of abuse in her childhood, who was accused of um, having a false memory by the people involved in abusing her. And I saw her as a client um, I found her extremely credible. She had no, there was nothing to do with um, recovering memory or gaps in her recall at all. She had a continual memory. And one of the things that she said to me, and it stayed with me forever, actually, is I understand 
that there are bad people in the world who do bad things to people, and I was a victim of one of those. What I don't understand is how there can be a whole bunch of psychologists on the advisory boards for these people. And can you explain that to me? And my answer was no, actually. I can't explain it. I don't understand it myself. And um, I think we spent as much time, I think it caused tremendous amount of distress that there were psychologists supporting this story. And I, or we spent as much time talking about that as we did about the trauma that happened to her. She found it what would now be called by Jennifer Freight, who's the person who triggered the whole false memory, who, 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 yeah, who triggered the start of it, and maybe I'll go back to that in a minute, would call, um, he, she experienced what Jennifer Freight would call betrayal trauma, where people that you rely on to be good and be kind of looking after you, like your parents or your teachers or your priests, or indeed your psychologists, actually are the ones who betray you. And that that, that is, a, is a bigger trauma than some things other people might do to you because of the nature of the expectation of the relationship. But actually, would it be helpful if I, if I took a step back and talked about, because the, the British, uh, if I talked about the history of the emergence might be a, quite a useful thing to do. That would be helpful. And if you could clarify precisely what is meant by uh, false memory syndrome as well. That would be very helpful to me okay. at any rate. So the, the false, okay, let me start with the, 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 the false memory syndrome. So has a, there is an idea that um, people can create certain kinds of false memories. And one of the things that's very interesting is this only seems to happen around things to do with sex. It doesn't, if we have soldiers come and see us who say, I had this happen to me when I was in Iraq or Afghanistan, we don't really doubt it. But we, when for some reason, if somebody said this happened to me when I was a child, lots of people will say, well, how do we know that's true? Or maybe you're imagining it or some such thing. Um, the false memory syndrome relies on a number of, I, I call it my three pillars. Um, it relies on uh, first of all, that there's no such thing as traumatic amnesia. Now, that's just wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. Okay. So that starts there, and that's important. And that's still a statement on the British False Memory website, that if something bad happens to you, you'd always remember it. And there's absolutely no doubt that's wrong. Okay. So it already starts from a wrong place. Um, and so... Um, have it, failure of recall of, of a trauma or certain aspects of a trauma is actually one of the defining criteria of PTSD in DSM. You know, it's one of, it's, anybody who works with trauma knows this is normal, that people have problems with memory, memory and problems with not remembering things that happened. Okay, so that's one thing I'd say. Um, the second thing I'd say about them is they then, they... Um, rely on experiments done in laboratories. And the famous one is Elizabeth Loftus's Lofted Namal study, which we can come on to as well, because it's so bad and yet has become, seems to become so important. Um, and they, so they take a laboratory study where, for example, in that case, some students were persuaded they got separated from them mums in a 
shopping mall for five minutes or something. And they asked them first of all, and they said, they said haven't you? And they said, no. And then they tried to manipulate their memories. And afterwards, they said, yes. And they make a kind of equivalence between those kinds of studies and say, because we can do that, that means we can't trust memories of people who say, I was abused for years by this person. There's a, what I consider a completely false equivalence between those two things. And the third thing that they'd say is that those false memories are very much um, uh, induced by therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. And the evidence of that is also that's completely untrue. The people where there is, there, there of course can be all kinds of reasons why people delay reporting abuse. So some of them might have continual memories and choose to delay for whatever reason. And some of them might actually have periods of time when they did not recall the abuse and then do recall it. And even in that group, there's evidence, there's great evidence from uh, two Australian studies showing that um, people who have had that kind of experience of a sudden recall of abuse uh, is not most commonly triggered by therapy. It's triggered by all kinds of other things and therapy is not the main one. It does, it's not that it can't happen. My belief about that is people start recalling, then go to therapy and then start talking about it. And then they'll say things like, well, you never said this before you went to see a therapist. Ergo, the therapist has put it in your head. So that would be, that's the kind of main structure of the false memory story. So, so you're saying that there's no, ev no evidence for false memories being implanted by therapists, other than in the particular circumstances that we might come on to talk about later on. That, well, there's that evidence right? that false, false, well, the, the false memories can be implanted in laboratory studies of what I would call trivial events. Okay, like, did you get separated from mummy for five minutes? And most of us could probably imagine that's possible, right? So you start, so you, you, you get, you persuade people something happened um, that would be vaguely possible and then make this massive leap to saying, therefore, you could imagine anything else. They compare it to alien abduction and things like that. It's like, I don't think you can persuade me I was abducted by aliens. You might persuade me I was separated from my mum for a few minutes in a department store or something. Doesn't, you know, I don't see any equivalence between those two things. But does that answer your question? I'm not sure if it does. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly clearer. Um, okay. So you've mentioned Elizabeth Loftus. Yeah. Is there any, is there any more you can say about her? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more I can say about her. <laughs> yeah. um, where do you start? Okay, so Elizabeth Loftus is a psychologist who came in in the very early days of uh, the false memory, uh, of the American false memory movement. She's had numerous ethics complaints made about her, which she's managed to evade each time. Um, there's a, a, a former president of the American Psychological Association, uh, Gerald Kucher, um, many, many years later said that Loftus was tipped off about an ethics complaint, uh, two ethics complaints actually, which were about to be investigated. 
Loftus has, has she resigned from the APA very suddenly just before that investigation started, which means it never took place. And she's repeatedly denied she was warned that that was happening. Um, she's made that denial um, under sworn oath, which means some people would say she's perjured herself. Um, and Kucha, who would seem to me to have no other agenda than wanting to tell the truth about 20 years too late, has said that he was told she was warned. So she resigned. She's, she's dodged ethics complaints all over the place. And um, she's, yeah, she's, there's, there are lots of, she's moved universities to avoid one, another ethics investigation um, on her um, TED talk. In her TED talk, she puts up on, on in lights the name of a client who was promised anonymity. Um, which was um, probably an act of vengeance because the person that a story which didn't fit with her narrative. Um, so, and as you probably know, she's a, she's a celebrity psychologist and she's not doing so well at the moment having tried to defend Osby and Weinstein uh, and so on. And she's meant by her own account has made millions out of using a false memory account to discredit people reporting abuse, both children and adults, actually. Wow. So, yeah, that's uh, fascinating. Although I believe anything you say about anything that's happened in the United States, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, the, and actually, I'd recommend anybody read The Lost in the Mall study. I was just checking before I came on the call. It's published. I mean, it's, what's quite interesting is everybody seems to know, think they know about it. Um, and hardly anybody's read it. It's five pages. It's published in a, in a slightly obscure journal. And it's really bad. I mean, I'm, I've, I have been an external examiner for the counselling psychology, it's a research part of the counselling psychology qualification, and I think I'd fail it if that was shown to me as a piece for somebody applying for their um, chartered counselling psychology qualification. It's a D-psych now, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's really that bad. It's really worth reading because it's so bad, actually. And it's just amazing to me how... Well, it's an amazing example of the great, what the, what the false memory people have is a fantastic PR machine. And it's how you can take something that's really, really not good and somehow create a whole story around it and what it means. And that's what they've been brilliantly successful at. And we as psychologists have been hopeless at combating that sort of, uh, the use of media and the, and the PR job. Well, it's a very powerful, um, in terms of impact, piece of research, though, because I remember I qualified in 1997, and I remember either just before or just after reading that study, and also there's a lot of discussion around the idea of false memory. And I remember people really being quite frightened, and this there was this yeah. kind of like narrative of you must never actually ask a client outright if they had a history of sexual abuse in case you yeah. implant this idea in them. You have to wait for them to come forward and... Mm. tell you this and um, you know I imagine that for a whole generation of, of therapists that uh, you know that people felt um, inhibited to some degree in terms of some of their conversations around abuse. 
I think that's absolutely right. And I think it was the intention. I think it was to, to put therapists off asking about it and raising the topic. And I think it succeeded. I think it probably has a much less potency now. But I certainly think, I definitely think there was a time, and certainly in the US, where certain therapists were actually picketed by the force memory people and the people standing outside their offices and advising clients not to go in and so on and demonstrating against them because they believed people when they were saying they were abused. I don't think we ever had anything quite as bad as that here. Um, but um, yeah, people were frightened. And I definitely, I definitely remember those, certainly the, end, the, the beginning of it, the end, say the end of the 90s, therapists being very put off working with people who reported abuse for those kinds of reasons. They were frightened. They'd be accused of um, inducing false memories. Thank you. Um, so you've touched on this to some extent already, but what's the history of the False Memory Foundation in the US? and the UK. Were they yeah. similar? Did one, one come from the yeah, other? Yeah, they were, they were peculiarly similar, actually. So what happened in the US was a now fam a famous Amer uh, professor of psychology, Jennifer Frey, a very eminent and I think an amazing person, uh, privately, and I think this is quite interesting, that accusations seem to have been private and the response becomes public. But she privately accused her parents of abuse during her childhood. Um, Jennifer Freight, by the way, was the person who originated the term DAVO. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which is I'm an not. acronym. Okay, so it's an acronym, D-A-R-V-O, which uh, for how abusers tend to respond. And it stands for deny, accuse, and reverse victim and offender. So it's, I didn't do it. Um, you're just saying this because whatever, you're not a therapist that's persuaded you, and this is a terrible thing for me, an awful thing to say. And in, in you know, whatever, however long it took me to say that, 30 seconds, they've, they're the victim. And I think it's a really great observation, actually, that that of um, Jennifer Frakes, how, how quickly those things get turned around. And suddenly, the person who's saying, I was victimized, is the one who's defending themselves and, mm -hmm. and, and having to justify that. It's interesting. Um, so we've just very recently had a conversation with somebody uh, with a whistleblower, and actually, I think that that acronym also applies yeah. equally well there, where it the organisation yeah. will will fabricate reasons. That's to right. Investigate. It's very definitely applies yeah. to whistleblowers. Yeah, I, 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 that's right. So Jennifer Freid accused her parents in a private meeting. Um, within a very short period of time, within weeks, they had set up the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, which was the first one, the American one. They set it up with another couple, um, Ralph Underwager and his wife, um, Holida, Holida Wakefield. Um, Ralph Underwager subsequently gave an interview to a paedophile magazine, which, of which I have a copy of the article, um, in which he says he thinks sex with children is a, is a, can be a responsible choice and is part of, could be part of God's will. So he, there was him and then his wife, who seemed to think that was a very reasonable thing to say. Um, what they realised they needed, 
very quickly was somebody respectable on the board and a mental health professional, because otherwise it might appear to be some accused people clubbing together to, to, to deny it. And they, need, they desperately needed that respectability. And they got it with Martin Orne, who I definitely would like to come back to. So Martin Orne was a very respected psychiatrist. He was very highly qualified. And he became the kind of chief recruiter for their scientific advisory board. And on their scientific advisory board are some very respectable names. Okay, so there, so they gained respectability very quickly uh, in the States. And, and uh, Loftus joined them very early on. And there was a lot of business and money to be made out of the false memory story. Um, quite soon afterwards, a year or two later, um, a remarkably similar thing happened at the beginning of it was remarkably similar here in the UK. Um, so Roger Scottford, man who's now deceased, Roger Scottford was accused by two of his daughters, two of his daughters of sexually abusing them during their childhood. And he set up the British branch of the uh, False Memory Society. And when I called him, I didn't know about that, those earlier connections with the Americans. Um, he also set up, he, he also needed a advisory board of respectable mental health professionals. Um, and unfortunately for him, they've now, it's, he's, the, the board's still there. They're still, the, the, the American one closed down uh, December before last, so December 2020 or 2021, I can't remember. Um, the British one is still going. They have had recently on their advisory board, Carl Saber, who's a convicted sex offender from Oxford, Dan, and Dan Wright, who's an academic, who's just been kind of outed as a sexual predator of students. Um, they also had on their board Martin Conway. I'm not saying that he was of that ilk, but Martin, what, why it's important is that Martin Conway chaired the British Psychological Society group uh, policy position on memory and law. So the BPS had an FMS advocate running their policy committee. And he obviously chose his mates, one of which was Dan Wright. And Loftus was another one. So Loftus came on as, a, as an advisor to the British Psychological Society statement on memory and the law. So you can see there's, an, there's quite an enmeshment between them. Yeah. So that's, yeah, so that's how they were started. Brilliant, thanks very much. Okay. I'm also, right. just I trying to gather gather my thoughts in terms of where to next take the question. I could, if you want, I could go on to I could go on to the Martin Orn thing now because that, if you'd like, because that would be it may be a good time to. Well, do just that. Be, perhaps be, before we come to that, perhaps I was just thinking, you know, whether so, you know, you quite you've often publicly challenged the BPS's position on yeah. false memory, yeah. and uh, you know I can hear that you 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 find it concerning the kind of like the entrenchment, you know, the yeah. the interwoven nature of the Indeed. relationships, 
like you know I wonder what what do you how do you think the BPS should have how, you know how did they end up in this position that you know what should they have done I think what they should have done if you do it it's I think it's I think it's not complicated but they but you have to want to do it right I suppose I think if you're going to produce a policy document about something that involves, um, let's say, a, a, a historical claims of, of abuse, right? So, it's, and it's going to be complicated. And I think there's nothing wrong with having people who are academic memory experts on that group. In fact, I think that's, that's quite a good idea. But I think what you should also do is have experts on trauma and memory and how memory uh, is affected by trauma and experts on abuse. And they didn't do that. Okay, so basically, what you do is get together a bunch. I'm sorry, I don't mean to. I don't mean to be rude about academics, but there'll be things they know about and things they don't, just like the clinicians. And what you need is a proper group of of where there are different there's bits of information coming in from diff, with diff, people coming in with different skills. But the very important bit, though, is that it's clearly unbiased and has does not have an agenda. And once you start putting people who are FMS sympathizers and, and make money out of FMS policy on the, on the policy making group, it immediately raises very big question marks, I think, about, about what their output is. Um, I think it's a very, very irresponsible thing to do, and it's never been corrected. The, the last time that the BPS produced a document like that was in 2008 and there have been one or two attempts to redo it because very few people are happy with it and the BPS always just closed them down before they produced their report with a variety of excuses. But if they, I believe if they wanted to it would not be difficult actually but they, I, now in my, I think they don't want to. Well, I guess when you've tried to hard to have those conversations, it's hard to see them taking that seriously or having the, the will to, to have a different oh, I've been, position. I've been trying to have the conversations forever, it seems like, and, and they don't really want to have them. And actually, one of the things that was quite, in a way, it's quite funny, bearing in mind the, uh, it's not funny, it's not one word, but it's something about like that, but it's bearing in mind how they got, they got rid of Nigel McClellan, who was an elected president by, who asked some awkward questions and they got rid of him accusing him of bullying. And I contacted the chair of, of the BPS report and said, you know, you're on, you're on the British Force Memory Society advisory board. And according to BPS rules, um, you're obliged to inform that information about psychology is correct. So how come you say in your on your website that there's no such thing as traumatic amnesia and he replied basically telling me he wasn't interested in hearing from me and that i was a bully and i should go away and not ever contact him again so you can't so it's quite difficult isn't it to have conversations with the chair mm. of the committee replies to you like that i i wrote what i think was quite a polite letter asking a question and that's what came back to me so yeah. Yeah, certainly we've had uh, we've had similar um accounts from Dave Pilgrim and Pat Harvey who yeah. we interviewed 
last year about their concerns about the BPS and heard quite similar response. But in in terms of the false memory discourse, what what kind of impact does that have on survivors of sexual abuse to to hear um, this this phrase of false I think memory it has being a touted prof- around? I think it has a profoundly negative impact on uh, people who have already been victimised. There's the one I could give, I could think of various examples. There's the one I told you about where somebody literally would spend the session in tears, begging me to explain how psychologists can support these things. Um, there's been there's been there was one case of a woman who committed suicide mid trial of her of the man she was accusing. It was later found guilty on several other counts. Um, I mean, I've got, I have a personal experience of it with a wife of a friend who was drug raped. There was no question about what happened or who did it. And she was advised, because as you probably know, there's a very long wait between uh, a person going to the police with a complaint like that and it ending up in court. So it's, I think it's over two years now. Naomi, you probably know better than me, do you, what, that, what, how long it will be? Okay, I think it is something like. Anyway, she was told not to have any therapy, not to go, not to talk to anybody about it in terms of requesting professional help, because it would be used in by the defence against her that she will see a therapist who will put stuff in her head and influence what she's going to say, and therefore that will be used by the defence. And so. I mean, that's, it's, it's pretty powerful. It's damage, isn't it? When you get somebody who's been severely traumatized, who's told not to get any, any help in dealing with their trauma because it will be used against them. So I think the impact goes on this. That happened um, within the last few months. I mean, so the impact, that kind of impact's just gone on and on. Yeah, I think when you think there's so many barriers to people uh, speaking up about histories of abuse anyway, it's very, very difficult, very painful for people to come forward. So I think any anything else that serves as a barrier isn't very helpful, is it? No, I don't think it's helpful at all. I mean, I get that you could, you could you, it would, again, I don't think it would be very difficult to issue guidelines about if you're a therapist dealing with somebody who's been recently traumatised, about how you do that. I don't think it would be difficult to do that. But there's... Yeah, it doesn't happen, not from the BPS anyway. So perhaps we can come on to Martin Orn mm. now. Can you tell us a bit about him and why his work was so controversial? Yeah, I can. And this is actually what I want to say to you and anybody listening. I don't blame you for not believing this. Okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's a very reasonable response to it. and. Um, I think when I first I stumbled across this, and I by again this is another thing about being an accidental expert. There were things I'd read about that happened to all come together in the same place, um, and I don't think it'd been observed by other people. And um, when I did discover it, you mentioned you mentioned that you'd talked to I think you talked to. Uh, Pat Harvey and David Pilgrim. And I, David Pilgrim is somebody that I like and I respect, and he's very straight talking. And I rang him up and said, Dave, I've got this, I've kind of put this 
thing together and it sounds like a mad conspiracy theory, which it does. Uh, and Dave very quiet, calmly and quietly just said to me, actually, have you got evidence to back it up? And I said, yeah, I can back up every sentence. Literally, I could go through it sentence by sentence and explain why, I, where that's coming from. And then he just said, well, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's like, that, you know, it's like, and we had a discussion about what that defines. And we, and that's where, but we, and now I, and now I still talk to occasion about what it is that enables people to believe things. And I actually sent him a, a podcast that I'd listened to about somebody who, one of the very, very rare people who managed to escape from Auschwitz. And he got to the UK and to America and he told his story. And there's a brilliant quote in it by somebody who says, I, I knew it was true and I didn't believe it. Which, was an which is an extraordinary sentence to say in a way, isn't it? But, uh, but also kind of psychologically, I sort of get it. It's like it's something that's so overwhelming to your mind that you, you, you just can't process it. And I, and I think some of, this will, some of this falls into that category, that it's challenging our ability to believe. It did it to me when I first came across it. So I don't blame that, that happening to anybody else. And I don't actually mind at all anybody if they want to ask me specific you know, questions about any of it. It's absolutely fine. Um, and it's fine to go and check the facts. And I'll try, I will try hard to distinguish between what is certainly true and how I interpret that. To go back to my story about the foundation of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, they really wanted respectability. Now, somehow they and Martin Orn found each other. And Martin Orn became the chief recruiter. He was highly respectable. Actually, I can just, I've got a piece of paper and I'm just going to read you out his um, uh, bit of his CV. So he was professor of psychiatry at Universal, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, leading expert on hypnosis. He testified in repressed memory cases, an expert witness. Um, he had an MD from Tufts, a PhD from Harvard. Um, he held membership of 32 professional societies and seven, he was on the editorial committee of 17 um, medical and psychological journals. Um, so he's somebody who had a lot of credibility. Um, and in fact, on, I have on my shelf, because I was quite, I actually, by chance, had read some of his work. I probably read it in the early 90s, but he was written in the mid 80s or so. 1984, so I've got notes in front of me here. He wrote a chapter that was published in a book in 1984, talking about how useful hypnosis was in treating trauma and traumatic amnesia. That's his words. So he was acknowledging the existence of traumatic amnesia in 1984. Um, Going back to uh, the time of the Cold War, so we're talking about primarily the 1960s, but this went on through the 70s and possibly 80s. It's unclear how long. The CIA was running a long-term 
program about mind control uh, that became known as M the K Ultra as a hyphen between the K and the Ultra. And you can, there's loads about it on the internet and you can read a lot about the MK Ultra program. So a lot, the vast majority of the records from the MK Ultra program have been destroyed. And some of them have been made public. I mean, we, I mean, we kind of really don't really know how much more there is there. Um, so it started, sorry, it started in the 50s and it went in at least until the mid 70s. It may have been more. Um, the program didn't become public knowledge until around sometime in the mid 90s. Okay, so it was, it was, a, so it all became public around the same time as the formation of the False Memory Syndrome Society. And it became public because of the congressional investigation into illegal CIA activity in the US around the world. And that um, I think Naomi's got the reference for where she can put up that. Um, I think it was Bill Clinton organized the congressional investigation. According to the sworn testimony of a number of people uh, in that investigation, which is available online uh, and vi in video form, so you can see it in court or in a, in a legal setting. Um, Martin Orn was the head of the MK Ultra, what was called the Institute for Experimental Research. Now, one of their areas of research which probably won't be too surprising to people, was the use of what they called honey traps, where they would use prostitutes um, to have sex with men that would be secretly filmed and then used as a tool of blackmail. It doesn't seem any doubt at all that that happened. And it's, as I said, it wouldn't, on its own, that didn't surprise me. The next bit is where it gets into the realms of the unbelievable. Um, because then what could be more powerful? What could be a more powerful tool of blackmail? The answer was filming a man having sex with a child. So according to the sworn testimony in those uh, explorations from the presidential inquiry, Orn recruited many girls under 10 into the program. There were also boys recruited into the program. I don't know why there's more data on the girls. Where they were taught, and I'm quoting directly from it now, how to please men. And they were abused in numerous ways. I, I'm not clear from the, what I've seen and read whether Martin Orn was himself personally engaged in these sessions about how to please men. Um, there are reports accused that his daughter accused uh, him of sexually abusing her. I don't know whether that's, I have no idea whether that's true. Um, the bit that does seem to be beyond much question is that Orn believed that he could exert total control over the girls' minds. As per, if you've seen the Manchurian candidate and all the kind of really wacky CIA stuff, the men who stare at goats and all that stuff, that, that how you use mind control to get people to do things either they, they wouldn't otherwise choose to do or 
but they have no recall of having done it. So he was involved in, he was deeply involved um, in, in, in effectively experiments in memory of how you get people to forget traumatic events. Um, uh, and there's probably been, there's some evidence that some of the people, not surprisingly, who were put through that program suffered severely psychologically as adults as a consequence of that. And certainly um, one of the American homegrown terrorists, Una Bomber, seems to have been uh, one of the young men who was part of their experimentation. Um, McVeigh, you mean? That, sorry? Do you mean McVeigh? Yeah, Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so he had, so... as you know, he had a grudge against universities. That's for, I think, the, the UN bit of, I think, airlines. I'm not quite sure where the airlines thing came from. But he sent nail bombs and things to universities, didn't he? So, can I just check yeah. something with you, yeah. Ashley? So, yeah. so you're saying that that the experiment was to um, persuade young girls and young boys to engage in sexual acts yeah. and then not not to remember it. So, yes. did they did they actually have young people out in the field, as it were? What did they then put the children out in the field? Yes, yes. Well, I presume so. That wasn't talked about. I didn't see that in the evidence that was presented. It was just talking about what was done to them by the CIA. Right. I presume that was the ultimate intent. Sorry, I would just want to say when I was talking about the Unabom, I wasn't saying he necessarily had that particular experience of sexual. Uh, abuse, but it may, it may have been something else, but it was definitely a mind control. He was involved in mind control things about getting people to do things that they don't want to, using some quite unpleasant techniques to induce fear, uh, principally. Hmm. Um, so then, so Orn, it appears, had uh, was quite confident in the fact that he was successful in inducing indefinite amnesia in the children he put through his program and unfortunately for him what happened was some, some years later which might have been 20 years later these women got into their 30s um, they started talking about it and this gave on um, they, and they started having flashbacks um, and it gave on a big problem about how to account for um, how do you how do you account for this all these people suddenly talking about stuff that was done to them sexual violence committed on um, so it was what I would call and this might become relevant later on in the conversation about the false memory stuff. It's what I would call a, a, to, he, what he was doing was creating a false negative belief, a belief that something did not happen that did actually happen. Okay, so there's a, and we'll come on to the difference between a false negative and a false positive. So then, 
at the same roughly the same time the false memory syndrome was emerging uh, in the states this sorry the false memory syndrome foundation to give it its correct title and they were to, they had something quite big in common there then which was they were looking they were both trying to find ways to deny reports of sexual abuse and um actually the other thing that's important to say about what was happening in america and it's varies state by state so it gets quite complicated was there was a statute of limitations uh which is uh, which means how long after the event can you claim a, a criminal offense um was being appropriately adjusted for people who were children when the offense occurred so if it had been seven years let's say so if you if a child was eight when it happened it meant they only had up until 15 to disclose it that what happened in different states was that the statute of limitations was being extended and in some cases abandoned um around issues to do with child abuse so the problem was becoming bigger and bigger in terms of the need for denial so Martin Orn and um, the group of people who started the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, that was the Braids and Ralph Underwager and his wife, uh, had a common goal. And um, they and Orn got together. So Orn became their chief recruiter on their advisory board and what orns then so what they then started to talk about that's when i said when i say this thing about the importance of understanding the difference between a false positive and a false negative memory so orn was trying to induce false negative memories to to a, a he was trying to induce a false memory that something had not happened when it had what they switched it to was let's talk about false memories false positive memories so say that this is a false memory of something happening that did not happen okay does that does that make sense okay what i just said okay so so he knew he understood something about false memory and indu and influencing memory so he just kind of turned it on its head and said let's let's just talk about this as a false memory and say you falsely imagined this thing has happened or something's led you to believe it and created this as a memory. Um, and the, the um, False Memory Syndrome Foundation were amazingly frank about that in the, in the minutes, I've seen the minutes of their early meetings where they just say, we need to get somebody respectable on board to otherwise it, it just, it, we just look like a group of people trying to find an excuse basically um so that's what they did so on was their man um i call it a marriage made in hell but so these this ex-cia mind altering experts got together with the false memory people who was ideally placed he was highly respectable he was the editor of 17 journals and he knew probably the most some of the most influential psychologists and psychiatrists in the states and he succeeded in getting on them onto the advisory board of the 
uh, False Memory Syndrome Foundation. So um, that was the that was the story of Orn. They, of course, they didn't mention the in, the in their sort of biography and in their stuff online. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation um, never mentions anything to do with Orn's previous mm. history. What was one of the things that was quite interesting to me was the, the, the false memory people have become rapidly on both sides of the Atlantic, probably everywhere in the world, rapidly anti-hypnosis, which is kind of curious that Orn was saying that's quite a good way of uncovering traumatic amnesia. Not very many years before, suddenly decided this was a really terrible idea and it shouldn't be done at all. Um, then soon after him, Loftus came in. Um, she was a very good kind of public face of the organization. She likes publicity. Um, she's made millions out of expert witness work. Um, and she's very good on TV and she became a kind of celebrity defendant. So she, so they got what they seemed to be very good at was manipulating the press. So they changed the public's perception of what it meant when people uh, accused historically. In 2019, it was 20, it was December 2019 that the American Force Memory Society closed down, which was quite fast in the wake of. Jeffrey Epstein's death. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but as we know, he died by whatever means in prison. Um, and then quite soon, within a couple of months, the American False Memory Society closed down. And the British one is limping along now. It's struggling to survive financially, but it keeps going. Um, this is, so this is, that's, yes, that's where we are. Thank you. That is fascinating. It all sounds slightly scary, believable, but scary to me. And uh, with all this kind of involvement with, you know, this uh, highly covert US operations, does, yeah. do you ever worry about your own position? Um, not really, not no. I've I've had um, I've had I've had let's say a caution rather than a threat, which was actually ironically from a senior member of the British Psychological Society, who said to me, "What you're doing is very dangerous." It was over. It was a telephone call actually, and I said, "What does that mean?" And he said, "People get murdered over things like this." And I said, I couldn't help. I just couldn't at the time, which might be naive. He said I was naive, uh, which might have been naivety. I kind of laughed at it. I thought it just seemed so ludicrous. But I just said, well, so, and so I said, anything less than that. And he said, don't be naive. And I said, well, what, well I am naive. What, do you, what does that mean? I mean, I'm just saying stuff about the false memory syndrome. What, what, what harm could come to me? 
And he said, and actually I think this is right, I think he was right. He said, um, they'll just they'll go, they'll destroy your reputation. I mean, ha- actually it hasn't happened to me, but I've seen it happen to other people like Valerie Sinison, where they've gone after her kind of rapidly, making complaints to her professional organization, doing just got using the press going everywhere, going to Private Eye, going to the Daily Mail, going to whoever, and just feeding them stories about her being sort of crazy person who believes in organised abuse, let's say. Mm. And actually, on that subject, let me just say something about that, because it's a sort of confession, is that I've known Valerie Simpson for a long time. And in the early days, I, going back to this thing about knowing and believing, I found it very hard to believe some of the things that she was saying. So in the 90s, let's say, saying, talking about abuse of vulnerable children in homes and things like that, and groups of men moving from one place to another, I found that kind, I found that a sort of like a conspiracy theory, like there are all these paedophiles who move together from one institution to another to get access to children. I just found, I couldn't really imagine it. It's back to this thing about what I, being able to believe what you can imagine. I couldn't believe there was such a terrible thing could be happening. And what I found out since is everything, my experience of Valerie is now I would say I consider her a good friend of mine. I mean, we published this book together. We, we, is basically everything she said has come to pass and is now almost like just accepted as fact. Nobody really now says. When she was saying it, everybody thought she was nuts. Now it's just kind of accepted as, yeah, that's, what's, that's what happens. So I think there's an interesting thing there about that I was a victim of myself about what I could believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some really kind of like mind-blowing stories, really, but also, you know, deeply chilling to hear hear some of what you've had to say. And I'm just conscious of the time, and we're coming to the end of our interview, really, Ashley, but you're working at the very extreme end of therapeutic work anyway, mm-hmm. and... And then also hearing all of this other really sinister stuff, it would be very easy to become quite depressed or paranoid, I'm sure. How, how do you maintain your own mental health and emotional well-being? Um, good question. I think I thought about that one. And I thought, because people ask me that sometimes, um, I think my, my main thing is, um, is having is my family and my relationships and having sane people around me and loving, caring people. Um, having, I think having fun, um, laughing, especially with when my children were young. I think I mean they're grown up now. Not like I can't laugh with them now. I do, but there's something about young children which is uninhibited, the uninhibited laughter and fun and all of that. And I think. Being around that is very healthy. Um, When I was doing, I did nothing to do with what we've been talking about. I did a job for the United Nations with a group of extremely traumatized people who'd been in a building where there'd been a uh, terrorist bomb and they'd been buried under rubble for long periods of time. Uh, Quite a lot of people died. And I was working on that project for a few months. And I found 
um, the relationship with colleagues was very important. Colleagues who were doing similar, very, really doing, we were part of a team. And having, we used to go out for dinner once a month at least and, go out and just being out, talking to people who really get it, I found really helpful. Um, so sort of sharing it and being able to say things like, say things that you know they understood of what we were doing and what we were dealing with. I think that's really important just to have a space to talk about the difficult things. And I think it's easier with colleagues who recognize it. Um, for me, um, being outdoors and in nature is really important. So I'll say to my wife sometimes, I need to just go out. I need to go out for a walk or walk along the river or just go somewhere outside. And she knows it's like, okay, it's like, well, I said we're going to do some job in the house. I said, no, I need to go. I need to go out. And um, that is that's a really big thing for me, actually. Being being stuck inside isn't great for me. So going outside in nature, um, exercise is quite important for me. Um, I did. I think some sort of exercise is good, but I think an other body thing. I know Van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I think is a great book. Uh, he talks about Tai Chi, which I took up before I read his book many years ago. And I take, I've, I've done Tai Chi quite seriously over quite a few years. I'm seriously enough to go to Penang and work with Tai Chi masters. And I find that, connect, that sort of mind-body connection really important in, in settling, settling oneself, reg, in body regulation in times of when you're dealing with high stress. And the other, the other thing I've discovered more recently, which I think I said to you, Naomi, at the moment, is like, I, well, I like, I've always liked writing. I like creativity. But now it's the first time I'm really developing a, uh, a side that's writing fiction. And um, I'm involved in writing a film script which looks like it might be coming, just, it's taken ages to get this far, but it looks like, it looks like it's going to happen. And it may be in the next few months. Um, and that um, I really, really enjoyed. And I think working with a bunch of creative people, it's made me understand these things at the Oscars, which I have found quite irritating in the past, where somebody says, oh, I love you, and you're fantastic, and I've got such wonderful people, and all that thing. <laughs> I kind of understand, actually, when you've been through, spent four years creating a script, let alone doing the film, you either probably come to love these people or hate them. <laughs> the, ones you, the ones you hate are probably fall by the wayside, and the ones that you, you end up with, this, certainly we have. Uh, a really tightly knit group of people who are really into it. Um, so it's a story which has got a lot, a lot of psychology in it. And so, but we also have a kind of mutual respect where we, I accept, I know a lot about the psychology stuff. I don't know much about how you make a film. So, you know, I listen to the scriptwriters say that doesn't really work. And the director says that wouldn't look good visually. And, you know, so everybody's got their, their bit of expertise and working I, th I suppose it's like working in any team I think it's great to have a diverse group as as long as you each respect each other's expertise and value that which we have and I've got that and I really it's 
it's given me something special. And I think I really believe that in, in doing something creative is great. It's a great thing to do. So that's where I am now, my latest creative thing. Thank you, Ashley. I think that's that's the first time we've had being involved in a film script as um, cited as the, as the well-being activity. But, but yeah, certainly I think um, so, doing something creative, uh, I think, can really offset other stuff. I think for me, starting this podcast was the nod to yeah. creativity in terms of creating something that that wasn't there um, at a time, you know, in the midst of the pandemic when things were quite difficult. So, yeah, yeah I can ab absolutely get that. But it's been a, a fascinating conversation today, Ashley. Re really thank grateful you to you for coming on and sharing sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much indeed for telling us about your very interesting work. And indeed, thanks very much for doing it. And it's been great talking with you. Well, likewise. Thank you. And please yeah, keep up what you're doing. So, I, yeah, I'd really like to hear more from you.